Let us now turn to the Word of God, and we may turn just now to the chapter we read, the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 1, the words of the Apostle Paul, verse 16. We may read from verse 14 just now, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God Revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now you will see that the apostle is speaking of his personal readiness to preach the gospel at Rome. And you will understand that when Paul was alive, Rome was the very center of world power at the time. And the apostle had been to many parts of the empire of Rome, but he wanted to get to the very heart of Rome and preach the gospel there. And the reason for this is because of what he personally believed about the gospel. And he tells us here he is not ashamed of it. Because of this, it is the power of God unto salvation. It has saving power. And it is the power of God to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now you will understand that in the apostles' time, the world was divided into two peoples, basically the Jews and non-Jews. That was the world of Paul's day. That was the world he lived in. That's how he understood things. And, of course, he says here, the gospel, he's not ashamed of it. He can preach it anywhere, to Jew or Gentile, because it is the one gospel that is suitable to meet the needs of Jew or Gentile. It makes no difference where they come from or who they are. The gospel still is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, whatever their background, whatever their history, wherever they come from. Now, when the apostle writes this, he does so as an apostle. An apostle who was ministering in the first century church, ministering to first century believers and non-believers. But this is what we're concentrating upon, first century Christianity. And this is the gospel of the first century. This is the gospel of the that was preached by the apostles that was the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Now if we go back to the gospel according to Luke, In the first chapter of Luke, he's introducing his gospel record, and he's writing, of course, uh, to uh, one that he seeks to enlighten as to what the believers, the Christians, really believed. It's an apology, as it were, for Christianity, first century Christianity. He's writing to Theophilus, And this is what he writes, verse 1 of chapter 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. How many times have you read that verse? And how many times have you really thought about it? For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things 
which are most surely believed among us. How many Gospels do we have? Four. How many apostles wrote epistles? Paul, John, Peter, James. What does Luke say? For as much as many. And sometimes we just read things we don't think about. We don't. What does that really mean? Because the fact is that there are far more Jewish writings even today than what we have in the New Testament. They were never incorporated into the canon of Scripture. But they are still read. And they are still studied, perhaps not by evangelical believers, but the Jews themselves today. They do consider them to be their writings. They will claim the Gospels as Jewish writings today if they accept the Messiah. And this is one of the things that Luke gives as a reason why he writes. He might we might think, well, is there any need if many others have written? Where's the need for him to write then? Why would he write if many have taken in hand, many have taken in hand to write the record of the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and so on? Why would Paul, or, or why would Luke rather, why would he need to write? Well, you see, the thing is, we've now discovered that there were many writings at the time written in the first century. And you can read of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, and many, many other writings. And they were seeking to set forth what Christians believed. And because some of it was spurious, then here's what Peter, what rather Luke writes, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. He wants to make sure that Theophilus knows what is really believed what the truth is that believe, what the followers of Jesus Christ really believed. And so he says, verse 2, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. What is Luke saying? My record is from eyewitnesses. My record is from those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses. He has taken in hand to write what was believed, what is surely believed among us from eyewitnesses, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and furthermore ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also having perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And you see, whenever Luke writes this way, It indicates that perhaps Theophilus had been reading other documents. And Luke is concerned that perhaps he's being misled, he's being deceived. And he's being led to believe, well, Christians in the first century believe this, or they believe that about the Messiah. And you will understand that at a very early stage there were debates and parties were established Some who rejected the deity of Jesus Christ. Others who rejected his humanity, his real humanity. There were all kinds of spurious teachings circulating in the early church. And so, uh, lest Theophilus 
be misled or be deceived by spurious writings, Luke says, I am now writing to you what is believed among us, what is the truth that you might, as he says, know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So, you see, right away we know this much, that there were certain things that were certainly believed. And one of the things that we need to consider is the actual gospel that was believed. And that's the gospel of which the Apostle Paul is speaking in Romans chapter 1. And he says there he's not ashamed of that gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Now when the same apostle writes to the Galatians, uh, this is what he has to tell them because some of them are being led astray. Some of them are being influenced by Judaizers who are teaching them as Gentiles, you need to be circumcised, you really need to become Jewish in order to be real Christians. And so the apostle has to put things right. And uh, this is what he writes to the Galatians in verse 6 of chapter 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him, from Christ, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Then he goes on to say, But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, Let him be accursed. Now the apostle is using strong language, strong uh, words to these Galatians because of the fact there is only one gospel. Now you listen to the average evangelical today speaking about the gospel. What is the simple explanation over and over and over again? The gospel is the good news. The good news. The good news. That's what we hear constantly. The good news. And then you have to ask, well, what is this good news? Good news. How is it good? Where does it come from? What makes it good? And then perhaps they might add, well, it's the good news of Jesus. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus came to save sinners, that Jesus Christ died at Calvary, that Jesus suffered on the cross. And he calls sinners to himself, and he loves sinners, and so on. And there is very little generally speaking, very, very little detail ever given of what this supposed good news is. Now, what did the apostles say? There is but one gospel. Now, that gospel can be corrupted. And once it's corrupted, it is another gospel. And yet it is not a gospel at all because it's a corrupted gospel. And he says here, even though it were an angel, he is so certain that if an angel stood before him declaring, Paul, I differ from you. I differ from you in your understanding of the gospel. Paul wouldn't believe the angel. He was so certain. And why is he so certain? Because he says, 
In verse 11, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. Did you ever wonder why so many people reject the gospel? Did you ever wonder why there is such hostility to the gospel? Did you ever wonder why the devil has managed to get so many preachers and so many teachers in the professing church to water it down, to weaken it? It is because it is not of men. It's never going to suit them. It's never going to be according to what they would like or what their carnal minds would agree to. He says, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the gospel then that Paul preaches, he stresses again in verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, I will not change my mind, I have no reason to, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than ye have received, let him be accursed. Now, when Paul is talking that way, is he peculiar? When he's speaking of one gospel, is that really true? This is one of the things that was most surely believed among those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ and his teaching. Who would be included in the eyewitnesses, do you think? Wouldn't you think, well, Paul would be because he met the Savior, or the risen, exalted Lord, met him. But we have, as we've been considering, in addition, those disciples who were chosen to be apostles. And why were they apostles? Because they had been with the Savior from the beginning. He chose them from, a many, from a, a, a many disciples that they would be with him. And he would appoint them then to be apostles, as we've already seen in the past. So if anyone was to know what was of certainty, what was of certainty regarding this gospel that Paul is talking about, it's going to be these apostles. They are eyewitnesses. So what gospel did they hear? What gospel were they witnesses to? What gospel did they hear the Savior himself preaching and teaching them? That's what we want to consider. Now, when we go to Matthew chapter 4, the first uh, record in the New Testament of the Savior's ministry, the beginning, as it were, of his ministry in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. And why is this written? Because of eyewitness. John, as we've already noted, when he writes his first epistle, he tells us that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which our hands have handled of the word of truth. We've seen, we've heard, we've handled. We've been in living touch with the Son of God in our nature. Matthew chapter 4, we read verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go down the end of verse 23 of the same chapter. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What gospel did he preach? What did the eyewitnesses hear him preach? 
What did they understand about his gospel? It was the gospel of the kingdom. Now you can go to other parts of the gospel record. Uh, For example, in Mark's account, the very first chapter, this is what Mark tells us. In verse 14 of Mark 1, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. How often have you heard those last words quoted? Repent ye and believe the gospel. And no reference is often made to what this gospel is. The gospel of the kingdom. Now you will hear reference, and rightly so, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation, different ways of referring to the gospel that is preached. But how often do we ever hear reference to the gospel of the kingdom? Is this some other gospel? Is this some gospel that we can now forget about? That the apostles like Paul moved on And they were preaching a more developed gospel, a more sophisticated gospel. Or as Paul says, there only is one gospel. And if I'm preaching a different gospel to Jesus Christ, then my gospel must be spurious. If he preached the gospel of the kingdom, that's the gospel I have to preach. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, in uh, the uh, gospel according to Matthew again, in chapter 9, Jesus is still going from place to place, preaching. And in uh, chapter uh, 9 of Matthew, and the verse 35, we read again, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There was a consistency with him. Everywhere he went, he preached the same gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, when we go further over and we uh, see that Jesus is consistent, he preaches, but what gospel was he expecting his disciples or his apostles to preach? He tells us that uh, they would preach the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Remember in Matthew 28, we've looked at it quite a number of times, he's sending them out. And he tells them to go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. In Mark's account, in chapter Mark's Gospel and the chapter 16, There you have uh, Mark's record in verse 14. Jesus appears to the disciples. Uh, Verse 14, afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and abraded them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was arisen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go ye into all the world 
and preached the gospel to every creature, did they then turn to the Savior and say, well, now, we need an explanation. We need some explanation of this gospel we're to preach. What would Jesus have said? What do you think I've been preaching all these days with you? What were you listening to as we went from city to city and town to town? What did you think I was preaching if I wasn't preaching the gospel? I was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And that is the gospel that they were themselves to preach. In Matthew chapter 23, we have the Savior... Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, and uh, verse uh, 3, we read there uh, concerning the religious leaders who taught the people who were supposed to explain the scriptures to them, the teaching of the prophets, the law, and so on. And Jesus said, we read, we may read from verse 1, He spake to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, uh, that observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. And you will find that later on in this chapter, Jesus has terrible strong words to be spoken against these who sat in Moses' seat, supposedly teaching the people, teaching them what they were to believe, teaching them what they were to practice in order to please God, in order to prove themselves righteous. Now, one of the things that Jesus says to them then in chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 13 Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Why? For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. You see what Jesus is up against? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus preaching? The gospel of the kingdom of heaven. He is, as it were, bringing the key that opens the door, that opens the way, into the kingdom. He's preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Why is it called the gospel then? Because the scribes and the Pharisees have shut the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, woe unto you. You won't go in yourselves, but you've also shut the door so that these people who need to get in can't get in. And so Jesus denounces them and he comes preaching the kingdom of heaven. But he also tells uh, the disciples then as he's instructing them before he will leave them in preparation for their ministry their preaching of the gospel so that they'll be able with confidence to say like Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. What does he say? Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. What does he tell them to do? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. What gospel do you think then these apostles are going to go and preach 
all over the world. The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that Christ preached. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, wouldn't you think, and I have to include myself in this, wouldn't you think that with so much emphasis on the gospel of the kingdom and so much emphasis upon the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, we would hear a lot more about it. You go through the parables that the Savior consistently was bringing in his ministry to the people. The disciples on occasion asked him what some of the parables meant, and he would explain them to them. But a considerable part of the Savior's ministry actually consisted of parables of the kingdom. You go back to Matthew chapter 13, where we have the parable that perhaps one of the parables we're more familiar with uh, with than others, the good seed being sown and some of it fell by the wayside and some into thorny ground and some into shallow ground and some into good ground and so on. And that same chapter of Matthew, Matthew 13, we read verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto, and then, whatever. Verse 31, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 44, verse 33, I should say, another parable speaking unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, and so on. Verse 44, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net and so on. Jesus' ministry was about the kingdom of heaven. His gospel was the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's one thing that perhaps we should stop and consider before going any further. What we may ask is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Because you will find that even in the ministry of the Savior, these terms are used interchangeably on occasions. Sometimes Jesus will speak of the kingdom of God, generally the kingdom of heaven, but he will refer to the kingdom of God. And we may well ask them, well, is there a difference? What is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? And then there's another question that arises in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, When the Savior says he's going to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, then he said to Peter, Matthew 16, verse 18, I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of of heaven. I will give unto thee, and that is to the apostles, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the generally accepted interpretation of this is these are the keys of the church. That this is the key or the keys of government in the church. I will give unto thee the keys 
of the kingdom of heaven. And because of this, there are sometimes confused notions about the church and the kingdom of heaven. Is the church the kingdom of heaven? Is the kingdom of heaven the church? We've already noted that Jesus was preaching the the gospel of the kingdom while the Pharisees and the scribes were shutting the kingdom to men. So Jesus is coming and he's preaching and he says, I am the door by me if any man enter in he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the one that opens the way into the kingdom of heaven. But he also does refer to the kingdom of God. And the keys are given to the apostles to do what? To simply govern, to simply rule. They are responsible to go with the gospel of the kingdom and they have the keys in that gospel to open up the way of salvation, to open the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus himself, when he's speaking to none less than Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And remember what Jesus has said, that the scribes and the Pharisees who have shut, <coughs> shut off the kingdom. And what does he say to one of these Pharisees? In John's Gospel, chapter 3, we read verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee and he was a ruler. He had the keys. And that's why they were shutting, because they believed they possessed the keys. And we will keep out these unrighteous people, these sinners. We will keep them out, these unrighteous people. The Pharisees praying as he looks in the publican and he thanks God he's not as, as he is, this publican. We've got the keys and we will keep him out. We don't want him in. He's not righteous. He's not fit to be in. So we will shut him out. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost with the gospel of the kingdom to open the way for guilty sinners to enter it. And here's Jesus speaking to one of these Pharisees and a ruler with the keys. And what does he say to him? Uh, Jesus said, Uh, Verse 3 of John 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now then, the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, are they the same? Or is it Uh, the kingdom of heaven in the church. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot be saved unless he's born again. In verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let's stop for a moment. And just think, what is the kingdom of God? Why would John or why would Nicodemus the Pharisee, why would he need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God? Go back with me to the book of Psalms and the Psalm 103. And there we're told in Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord 
hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. His kingdom rules over everything, over the whole of the universe. Now, why would Jesus then say, Nicodemus, you need to be born again to enter God's kingdom? Nicodemus has been naturally born into God's kingdom. He's already, because he's a creature, in God's kingdom that rules over all. Verse 20 of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, ye as angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of the Lord. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You go to the book of Daniel, you remember the mighty Nebuchadnezzar, when he was boasting of the great kingdom that he had built. And God so dealt with him that he was out as a beast in the field. His nails were grown like the claws of an eagle. eagle. His hair was uh, like the feathers of an eagle, we're told. He was out of his mind. And he couldn't even dwell among men. But then his mind returned to him. And then what did he think? He thought very differently about who God was, and he had a very different opinion of himself. Verse 28 of Daniel 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar speak and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, And Abignego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And then he makes a decree that all the nations are to worship this one god. But even though he makes that decree, it's a very hard lesson to learn personally. And so later on, God deals with him. And he's, as we said, he's out in the field as a beast. But when his mind returns, what does he say? Verse 34 of Daniel 4. The end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. And mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say, can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar is the same on other occasions with others. They were brought to recognize this. God's kingdom includes all of creation. His kingdom includes the whole created universe. He rules over it all. It's all part of his dominion. Why then would Jesus say to Nicodemus, if you're not born again, Nicodemus, you can enter the kingdom of God? It is because, you see, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are in one respect the same, but in another respect they're differently. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven includes the church, and yet it is different. 
the part of the world that I come from, you look up a passport or a legal document or that, and you will see two letters very often, GB, and on other occasions, UK. GB, Great Britain. UK, United Kingdom. Now, are they different? They are the same geographical identity. Great Britain is the United Kingdom. But Great Britain is distinguished from, say, France and Germany and Spain, the other countries in Europe. But then when we refer to the same place as the United Kingdom, it's not so much distinguishing it from the other countries of Europe as identifying it as the United Kingdom of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Now they are the same, and yet they're not the same. One includes the other, and they're identified as the same uh, country. And this is how perhaps we might understand the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They are the same, and yet they are not the same because the kingdom of of God is the sovereign rule and dominion of God over everything, the kingdom of heaven and the church as well. It's all included. But then, when Paul is writing to the Colossians, and I want you to note this, in his epistle to the Colossians, he makes reference to the kingdom in a different way. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now we have the kingdom presented to us in another way. The kingdom of his dear son. Nicodemus needed to be born again. He needed to be regenerated spiritually to see this kingdom, to enter this kingdom. Why? Because it is the kingdom of God's dear son. Now, what does that mean? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God's dear Son. Go back with me to the Gospel according to Luke. And you see, as you're aware, there are two genealogies of the Savior, one in Matthew and one in Luke. In Luke chapter 3, the very last verse of the chapter, we read this, which, verse 38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam, which was the son of God. Now he was a created son of God. When God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he's the only begotten of the Father, uncreated existing from eternity. But this is God's son, Adam. We don't read which was God's dear son, but he was the son of God. Now, why do I draw attention to that? Because when we go back to the book of Psalms and go to the Psalm 8, we read there in verse 4, Psalm 8, 
we have the question, What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. To whom does this apply? Adam, who was the son of God. You go back to the book of Genesis, to when God was of a mind to create Adam. What did God decide to create him for? Verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created him, and in verse 28, God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. There's no doubt that when Adam was created, Adam, who was the son of God, he was given a kingdom, he was given dominion, he was to rule over creation. And so it was the it was the kingdom of God's son Adam. When Adam sinned, everything changed. When he rebelled against God, he lost his crown. He wasn't capable of ruling anymore. He couldn't control the earth anymore. It would bring forth thorns and thistles. It would be a completely different kingdom. He couldn't rule it. But then, you see, when we come to the epistle to the Hebrews, these words are taken up again. And this time they are applied to someone else in the epistle to the Hebrews. (coughs) We read this. Unto the Son, Hebrews 1, verse 8, Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Chapter 2, then, of Hebrews, we read, verse 6, One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man? We're back at Psalm 8 that thou art mindful of him or the son of man, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Thou hast put all things under his feet, and so on. Now the application is to God's dear son, not to Adam, the son of God. But these words are now applied to God's Dear son, and therefore what are we to understand of this? When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he contrasts the two Adams. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, we read, So it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit, and so on. So there is this contrast between the first Adam 
and the last Adam. The first Adam lost his kingdom. He lost his crown. He couldn't then rule that kingdom. Sin entered it. And death because of sin entered it. It isn't a kingdom of righteousness now. It's a kingdom where sin reigns in chaos. But the kingdom of God's dear son is the kingdom that he redeems and he restores. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. He comes to seek and to save that which was lost. He comes to open the kingdom again, to reconcile men to God. As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, and because of sin, they're separated and alienated from God. The kingdom of God's dear Son is the kingdom that is redeemed. And those who are citizens of that kingdom are the fallen sons and the ruined daughters of Adam's race and Adam's fallen kingdom. When he comes to preach the gospel of the kingdom, what is it? It's the gospel of a restored, reconciled relationship to God. When we pray, and when we come to pray to God, and we take up the invitation by faith, and we come boldly, where do we come to? Let us come boldly to where? To the throne. Well, you can't have a throne if you don't have a kingdom. And this is the kingdom of mercy. This is the kingdom of righteousness. And we come to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and that we might find grace in time of need, to help in time of need. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that opens up the way for poor sinners to come to the very throne. To come to the very throne of that kingdom. To the very king himself. To the very ruler of that kingdom. We're either in the first Adam or we're in the last Adam. Reconciled to God with free access. You think of it. Would you think yourself greatly privileged if at this moment in time you had 24-hour access, seven-day-a-week access, 12 months of the year access, 24 hours of every day, access freely to the throne of King Charles? You'd come to him any time you want. You're not interrupting him. He pays attention to you. He listens to your requests. Any time at all, you'd be thinking, I'm very highly fevered. How highly fevered is the child of God that has access 24 hours a day, seven days of the week, 12 months of the year, to the throne of the kingdom of heaven, the very king himself. Little wonder then the apostle says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel he preached was the gospel of the kingdom. And the problem with the gospel that is presented so often today is it leaves that out because a kingdom has discipline. And a kingdom has government. And a kingdom has a king. And the redeemer of God's elect holds three offices. Prophet, priest, and king. 
And if he's not king, he's not priest, and he's not uh, a savior. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that exists because of the king himself, because of Christ. And that's, sadly, I believe that that is an area of the gospel that has been neglected to our own detriment as a generation. But the time is gone. We must leave it there. May the Lord bless to us his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we thank thee for the king of Zion. And though the nations and the peoples rage against him, by an eternal decree thou hast set him on thy holy hill Zion. And we praise thee that his throne and his kingdom is a kingdom or is a throne of grace and a throne of mercy where even the chiefest of sinners may come and through him may enter into that kingdom and enjoy all its benefits. O do thou grant that our eyes would be toward that blessed one who opened up the way into the kingdom that had been so shut against poor sinners when the Savior came. Bless thy truth to us. Enable us to praise thee today for the gospel of the kingdom. Pardon us now and accept us. For Christ's sake. Amen.